0: You are listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast, where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. I'm your host, Brandon, and this is episode 89. With me today, I have Danielle Shelton. She's a historian of ancient and medieval textiles and fashion. And today, we're going to talk about a 3,600-year-old cheese. So earlier this year, I think I mentioned it before on the podcast, there was a Nature. Nature published the evidence for the oldest known dairy fermentation method, and to put in context, uh, these were some Caucasian mummies uh, that uh, Danielle actually studied in, for her master's thesis. So this is connected with the work that she did, not necessarily connected with the food-related thing. But since this is cheese, was found around the necks of the deceased, it only seems fitting to have, say, a medieval textiles and fashion historian on the show to talk about this. So welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much.
0: So what is this? Uh, I want to get into more of your background and everything, but what is this, uh, this cheese?
1: These mummies, these these mummies that were found out in uh, the Taklamakan Desert in the Tarim Basin, they were buried in these salt flats, kind of these these salt beds, 4,000 years ago. Their bodies completely desiccated, and apparently, this is they have horrible cold winters there too, so they freeze dried on top of that. And so they found these uh, when they dug them up and in the past century they found like this organic compound like in little lumps around some of the mummy's necks and they also found some in these um very uh, lovely baskets that some of them had next to their waist um, and yeah they when they did all these scientific analysis of it they they found it was made from kefir so they had kefir cheese four thousand years ago.
0: Oh, wow, and I really want to get into like what it is that how they were able to come to this conclusion. I mean, because that's that's some really old kefir. But um, for, but first, getting into this. So you studied these these mummies. What's kind of your your background and what was this this thesis you were working on?
1: I did an insane thesis. Um, <laughs> I was studying ancient and medieval. Textiles, uh, the silk trade in particular. And I did uh, like a 3,000 year fashion history of Eurasia that ended with the First Crusade in 1095. So um, uh, these mummies were found along, you know, what one of the routes that we call the Silk Road. There were many, many routes, um, some by land, some by sea. When they were dug up, I mean, they just look completely like I mean, they look like they could have died two months ago they're beautiful. Some of them are, I mean, literally beautiful. If you look up the beauty of Xiao Hu, she is beautiful. I mean, there's no other word for it, I guess.
0: Yeah. And I think I'll, I'll actually, I think you uh, sent me a link for a certain article and I think it even has a picture of, of her in there. And it yes. does. And she just, it, it's crazy how realistic, Um, I mean, I guess it is real, but I mean, how, how, like you're talking about, like, doesn't look like they've been uh, dead for very long no and and i guess maybe it's a maybe a good thing to to clarify too i mean uh, i know a lot of times when people hear mummies they think of the stereotypical egyptian mummy um these are not that style of thing do you know where these even were they meant to be preserved or was it just because of the 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 climate that they were preserved
1: well they were preserved uh because of the climate like i said they they're in the Taklamakan Desert, uh, which is one of the most arid regions in the world. It's surrounded, the Tarim Basin is surrounded by mountains, high mountains like the Himalayas and um, and some other mountain chains. And so all of the rain gets dropped on the far side of the mountains and the only water that comes into the Tarim Basin is from the snow on top of those mountains. So um, the, the people who live there Uh, were in these oases all the way around the basin. Um, So, I mean, they were living in a very arid region that got extremely cold in the wintertime, like negative 20. And so, yeah, the bodies were completely preserved. Although there was some evidence that uh, perhaps later on, um, like maybe around 3,000 years ago, when you look at um, the men, he... um, Suppose we think that he was actually buried sitting up, and that that may have been a way to help keep him from um rotting in the ground. If you know, because one of the women that were buried with him had fallen over, and she kind of did um um you know disintegrate a little bit. But um, he he looks like yeah, he died last week, it's incredible.
0: That's crazy, and was- and so these uh these people that lived there. I mean, were they so what was if you have any idea what was the benefit of living in such a challenging climate?
1: Not, I have no idea what the benefit would be other okay. than uh, other than maybe nobody else wanted to live there. Yeah, because it was just such a, a strange place to be.
0: Now, you say this was was this on the silk trade? So were there plenty of people that would pass through this area?
1: People did. They did pass through. It was challenging to get there. Because like I said, they would have had to go over a few different mountain ranges uh, coming in and going out. Um, and then you had to cross through the Taklamakan Desert, which is really bad. There's um, some, you know, it's not really true what the what some of the etymology is behind the name. Some of them say that it's like you go in but you can't come out is what it means, but that's not actually accurate. But it's
0: still not something that uh – people would want to traverse unless they really had to.
1: Absolutely not. (laughs) Okay.
0: So then there were these people. So the people that uh, were found deceased, they were most likely the inhabitants of that area then. Is that the understanding?
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: So then they were milking, obviously had some dairy animals of some sort. Do you know in the, in the research that you've done, do you know what kind of animals they would have had?
1: Most of the, the cheese that they found was uh, from cow's milk um, but there were some that was either sheep or goat, um, and they didn't specify which one. But then again, in the archaeological record, it's uh, when they find because they found bones of all of those animals and, and horns of all of those animals there. Um, so um, – and, and ears. They were buried – these people were buried uh, at uh, Xiaohu with um, either cows, uh, goats, or sheep's ears next to their heads. Um, and we don't know what the significance of that was, but um, it's hard in the archaeological record to determine whether something was a sheep or a goat because the bones are, I guess, the same pretty much. Without doing DNA uh, testing, they can't really tell.
0: And is that – I know science isn't necessarily uh, your background, but like, is that even something that they could do or is – are the remains? Is there no DNA left at that point?
1: Um, I guess it would depend on the quality of the remains. Uh, I mean, if they if they can de- extract DNA, sure they could they could test it. But um, I think at this point they're a little bit overwhelmed with the human bodies that they've gotten from this one particular graveyard.
0: I guess that's true. So yeah, there's they're still there's. So it sounds like it's, there's still a lot of active research being done on these these people.
1: Absolutely. what, what happened with this particular graveyard? It was. First excavated in 1934 by a Swedish archaeologist, Volker Bergman. I'm probably not saying that correctly. but Sounded pretty good there. (laughs) (laughs) But he, um, he excavated some bodies, maybe, I don't know, maybe a dozen, and brought them back to Sweden and wrote about them and everything. And then this place was kind of forgotten for 70 years. And um, people started getting curious again. They looked up his his maps and everything, and they went out and they found it. But of course, as soon as the you know the officials and the archaeologists found it, so did the looters. And so the looters and the archaeologists were basically racing each other to extract everything they could from this place. And so the Chinese government, I think in 2003 or 2004, um, authorized the archaeologists to go in and just like hit it hard and get everything out before the looters took it all. And um, it's apparently it's a very difficult because it is such an arid and, you know, strange environment. Um, They could only do their excavations between, I think November and March and the rest of the year. It was just, um, you couldn't do it. So they had a, a, a very small window of opportunity to get in there and extract all they could. And they ended up, I think with about 190, uh, tombs that they they found and were excavated,
0: and so now the excavation are they are they done now? They got everything that they could, and and now they're just examining all this stuff. Exactly. Okay. So then, so then this 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 kefir, this cheese necklace of sorts, and in the baskets and everywhere, this is just one of those things that was collected more recently, but it's just uh, finally getting around to actually studying it. Right. So then, okay. So this this would any of this fit into the realm of kind of what? you study with fashion and whatnot. I mean, is is this kind of a fashion statement of sorts? Like, are these things people wore or only the deceased wore around their neck?
1: Yeah, I think it was just something for the deceased. It wasn't put on a string or anything like that. It wasn't made to be worn, but it, I think it was probably like a, a funerary rite, you know, sending the dead off with food to the next world kind of a thing.
0: Oh, and here I was thinking that like, this was like a fashion statement, like everyone's going to start walking around <laughs> nowadays, like it'll oh, come back.
1: <laughs> that would be interesting.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Is there any significance? Do you know at all, like your studies in, in textiles and whatnot, do you know what kind of vessels people were using to to make this in? I mean, they would have had to have it in something, maybe a, a animal skin bag or a stomach.
1: Well, they, they were buried with um, little leather pouches and but there was no evidence of the cheese being in those just in the baskets that they were buried with. And um, this particular graveyard was nowhere near any human settlements. So we don't actually know where these people were living, but they brought their dead to this really, you know, arid part of the desert and buried them there.
0: Okay. So the, so the people may not have lived right in that area that, we were describing at the beginning. Correct. Okay. So they, they, but I would think that they're not probably not traveling all too far, but whatever, kind of wherever they would have been, they probably would have been in kind of a not so great climate, no matter what.
1: They would be like in an an oasis area. So there were lots of little, little rivers and stuff that would go around the rim of the basin and maybe even some into the desert, but they, um, they, you know, they would shift course and dry up frequently. Um, when when the Swedish archaeologist in the 30s went there, he actually you know went down a river, but it's no longer there.
0: Oh, okay. So these might have been slightly nomadic people, but for whatever reason, either they always chose this spot for their their tombs, or they this was one of at least the one that was discovered. Would that be?
1: Yeah, they buried their people there for um over a thousand years. So oh,
0: okay. So this yeah. was like an important <laughs> spot. This wasn't like something like this was one of them. This was like the spot that the dead went to at least the, I don't know, I guess, does, is there any significant sign that um, these were of a certain rank of people or did this seem like it was anyone would be there? Anyone from the tribe or however um, you describe well, it. There were,
1: there were, um, you know, men, women, and children were all buried there. Um, they're the only ones apparently that had any um, difference. I think there were four female graves Um, that most of the coffins or all of the coffins were kind of, they look like a upturned uh, boat. Um, Like you're looking at the bottom of a boat and um, uh, then they would take these, they would bring cattle to the site and slaughter and skin the cattle and cover the coffins in these, in like two or three um, cattle hides and when they covered them up with the with the the dryness of the area, it sucked all of the the blood and and liquid out and like shrink wrapped these coffins. Okay. Wow. Yeah, it's inc- it's really incredible. Um. So, uh, you know, not not even a grain of sand got in there in all of this time until they were opened either by looters or by archaeologists. And anyway, but there were four of four female graves that had some kind of um, like square or or rectangular um, like mud boxes or whatever, something like that kind of built over the top of the regular coffins. And so there's speculation is that these may have been um, more important women in the community or I don't know if they were richer or whatever. I'm not sure. We can only guess. I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's there's. I mean, looking at the the images that a person can can find online, and I'll put uh, some of the links in the in the show notes for this. I mean, it just it is uh, this kind of stuff. I I really appreciate history and um, archaeology, but like. I don't spend enough time just really looking at this kind of stuff. So it's just amazing to see. It's like, these were people that again, like you said, don't look like they have been dead that long, but I, in, in, in my intellectual brain, I understand that, but just looking at them, I don't. And it's like, but this is like a part of so distant past. Um And they're doing things relatively similar to us making cheeses, making, uh, fermenting stuff like, like we do today. And it's just, it's crazy. Yeah. And I think it, it puts it all into perspective a little bit about how like ancient some of these food processes are. And even though today we don't have to make this stuff, we, we are still kind of drawn to it. And and sometimes I, I wonder, um, I don't have anything to back it up, but I sometimes wonder if like, it's just kind of in it's, it's ingrained in us. I mean, through evolution, like those that, fermented were the ones that survived and so like somewhere in us we like crave the ferments because it's what kept some of these people alive probably
1: absolutely absolutely i mean reason or one of the reasons that these people were probably able to cross such a great distance from the um you know the tokarians were originally uh indo well they are uh or were indo-europeans um so you know like seven thousand years ago, the Indo-Europeans, the you know, one of the the supposed homeland was north of the Black and Caspian seas, so in over on the what we call like the Russian steppe or the Eurasian steppe. <clears throat> so they had like, I don't know, nearly three thousand miles to travel to get to where these they were buried. Um, and the only way they could have done that was by consuming fermented milk. Um, they had to, to preserve it, and at this particular time in our evolution, no one uh, could tolerate lactose, so they had to ferment the milk in order to be able to consume it, and because of that, they um, <clears throat> they had more access to uh, protein and nutrition from from the dairy, and they kind of, you know, in an evolutionary uh, perspective, they, they kind of outcompeted some of the other people, in, you know, in, that would have been contemporary in, you know, in that time period. Um, so they, they grew bigger, they, you know, they, their population grew, and so the, as the populations grew, of course, they had to split off, and, you know, there goes the Tikarians one way, the Hittites another, the Anatolians another way, and the Germanic and Celtic folks somewhere else, um. So yeah, it, it's really amazing. And so these Tacarians, um, and we know that they were the Tacarians um, because they um, we found uh, some of their their writings from later on. Their descendants um, were actually writing things down, like in the you know second, third, fourth centuries CE. And yeah, they've they've been able to interpret these things, and and their language was very similar to Celtic.
0: Okay, so these. These people spread in many different directions, though.
1: Many different directions. But these folks, these Takarians that were buried out there in that uh, Taklamakan Desert, um, they were the furthest east extension of the Indo-European diaspora.
0: So I'm trying to think. Kiefer didn't remain a thing in different parts of uh, of Europe, but some of these people would have had influence there. I mean, do you think that that just translated into the cheese that a lot of European people know?
1: I think it's uh, it's a good hypothesis, sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just wonder where these – I mean, it, it's, it could very well be that these were to, two totally separate – ways of, of fermenting uh, cheese and, and, you know, the cheese that many people know in, in the United States and in parts of Europe may very well just have been accidental. But I guess without getting into these hypotheses, let's talk more about the science. Let's talk about like, uh, how are they able to actually figure this out? Do you Were you able to get that from the, the study?
1: So what they did, um, each one of these little lumps around the, the mummy's necks, um, they were about one to two centimeters in diameter. And they had kind of a chunky texture. So they were obviously something different. And so the scientists took like a 5 to 15 milligram samples from 12 different lumps found in 10 different graves. And so um, they took each sample and they kind of ground it down to a powder. And they added a whole bunch of chemicals that I had never heard of before. And they eventually got it to where they could analyze it. Um, and they did uh, like a protein analysis Um and FTIR characterization, and ion chromatography, and elemental uh, analyses, and so they figured out that it was mostly cow's milk cheese from cow's milk. Um, there were some either goat or sheep uh, milk mixed in with some of the the lumps, um, but then they were looking at things like their the the caseins and the proteins that had remained in those ancient samples, and they they, they realized that uh, the cheese hadn't been made with rennet and uh, it hadn't been acidified, uh, you know, or, or boiled like you would, you know, um, like make farmer's cheese or whatever. Now, so uh, they they were like, okay, well, let's look at at fermentation, and so then they started looking at that and realized that there were lactic acid bacteria. Specifically, the one that that belongs to kefir, and I won't um, mess that name up. The lactobacillus.
0: I think I have it in front of me too. Uh, it, it, kefirin is often how it's short, shortened. The kefirin branch of things, but kefirino facins. We'll we go with that.
1: <laughs> yes, that sounds great. <laughs> and it also had some uh, uh, saccharomycetaceae, I don't know how to say that yeast. Um, and those are also found. Those are all commonly found in in kefir. Um, And so then they did a little um, uh, reconstructive archaeology. They went and got some commercial raw milk, and then they ordered kefir grains, both the Caucasian and the Tibetan kind. And um, they made kefir in their lab and, you know, let it set up for 72 hours, strained it off. um, And then they uh, dehydrated it um, and went through the same process that they had with the, the ancient samples. And um, so, what they what they figured out was that um, the the ancient kefir was made from skimmed milk, skimmed raw milk, um, mostly cow's milk, like I said, um, and that it was made with the uh, the Tibetan kind of kefir grains.
0: Are you familiar? I'm not familiar specifically what the differentiation is between the two.
1: This article was the. I mean, I've really been trying to dig into this lately, and this article was the only one that I've ever seen that um, actually said that there was a difference. And something to do with the particular yeast that's in it, the Saccharomyces cerevisiae, that is the one that's found in the Tibetan kefir.
0: Okay, so it's not necessarily that it is even changing or or would be that noticeably different, but there is, are, there's, there are two separate strains with different um, potential microbial makeup, right? Because I, I know that there's like a I've seen kefir grains that are are more globular, and then there are some that are more like almost squid-like. But I didn't know if that was a differentiation, but it seems to not be the case. Um, but that's that's really fascinating. That okay, so it's more Tibetan. Does that fit with the the way that people uh, these. I for, I'm going to talk about Marians, that the
1: Takarians. Takarians
0: that they would have traveled. Would they have made it the Tibetan way as well?
1: Some of the the bodies actually had jade beads on them, and uh, with like little bracelets with jade beads. And um, the closest jade was about 300 miles away. So um, we know that they were they were engaged in long distance trade. So it's you know they could have picked up the the kefir grains you know on a trading mission perhaps you know, took it from there and and of course they were still trading with folks back west so um, they um, you know maybe that's how how it got all the way to the to you know Eastern Europe
0: that makes by sense about these
1: trade routes.
0: And so things like uh, like jade now it now it makes sense. So those are the things that like looters are going for us for the jade and other things. I'm just trying to think because I was like, well, it, this is, these aren't like Egyptian burial with like a lot of gold or other things, um, but there's still no. stuff that people could loot. Or do people just loot anything just because you know it's it's there?
1: Well, I think you know uh, some some looters are probably just folks that are living on the margins anyway. You know, so any little extra that they can bring into their household. Um, they they do. Um, although the the gentleman who brought the knowledge of these mummies to the West, Dr. Victor Mayer, uh, from Pennsylvania, yeah, University of Pennsylvania, he um, he said that he went to a site, I think, uh, a Scythian site, probably, I guess maybe around Russia, somewhere around Ukraine or somewhere, and he said that the looters were there with bulldozers and machine guns, and they chased off the actual government scientists. Um, so some of them are, you know, of course, the Scythian graves were probably a good bit richer um, materially than, than these uh, Takarian graves. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, looting is just a, an international problem when it comes to archaeological finds.
0: Do any of that does any of that and this is kind of just off topic, which is curious does do and do you know if any of those uh, lootings since it sometimes seems more organized than otherwise, does any of that ever end up making it like through a black market back into the public realm of of science or, or is it pretty much gone if it goes that direction
1: no they they can sometimes things are recovered um, but i I think that might be the rare occasion when things are recovered by the authorities. It's unfortunate I mean because. I could almost forgive it if they at least documented what they were doing and they cared about, you know, the the, the history and the in the the science behind it. If they could pass those records on, on you know, along the black market, that would be great for me, you know, from my point of view.
0: Like a like a looter school that has an ethics yeah. class.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. That would, you know, I could live with that, but um, um. Just the wholesale destruction of knowledge that, you know, we'll never be able to reconstruct some of that stuff ever. That, that hurts my heart.
0: (laughs) Definitely. Especially after seeing some of these things that like, if they were just looted, we would have never known about this, this ancient cheese or, or so many other amazing discoveries.
1: Right. Right.
0: So let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about, um, this, this other stuff that you've kind of been doing because you've been, you've been in the realm of, of fermentation a little bit, uh, I, I see you started a website, a Firm Demental. Uh, this is always a little tough for me to to say at first. Firm Dementals. It' totally easy to read, but saying it out loud the first few times. Um, yeah. You have this website. So, what inspired you to kind of get more into fermentation?
1: I have fibromyalgia, so um, I've kind of. I was in the military when when I got sick and. Um, It took them three years to figure out what was wrong with me. And in the meantime, I'd kind of given up on traditional medicine and had started trying to figure out how to take care of myself. Um, So nutrition was a big part of that. And um, so a couple, you know, a couple years ago when they really started coming out saying that, okay, we've got all this, you know, flora and fauna that we should be having in our guts. But, you know, Americans don't have that because, you know, of our diets and uh, antibiotics and all that kind of stuff I kind of jumped right on on it and was like oh let me start making all this fabulous wonderful stuff and uh, <laughs> so um, yeah I started making my own kefir and yogurt and fermenting vegetables and making kombucha and my husband and I brew our own beer and wine and all that kind of stuff too so
0: and and you've um, in history wise you've you've taught uh, before, so is are, I also see you're teaching workshops with, with fermentation. What kind of workshops? What kind of things do you focus on?
1: I've done a couple of kimchi demonstrations. Uh, we have muscadon grapes that grow wild here, and so um, at the beginning, about a month ago, I taught a muscadon wine class, um, and then this Saturday, November eighth, I'm going to be teaching a class on mead, cider, and sizer. Ooh, so, yeah, sounds,
0: sounds delicious.
1: Oh, yes it is
0: <laughs> <laughs> um and so do you um do you plan to keep uh, ex- expanding more on the on the website and and doing more workshops i mean do you like this stuff
1: oh i love it. it it's a lot of fun for me uh you know i'm i was always the weird kid that had to go and like learn something from the ground up you know so um when i started getting into to textile stuff in medieval history i you know i had to learn to make the clothing and then I had to learn how to weave and then I had to learn how to spin my own yarn and dye it with dyes that I made from plants. Um, and so the same thing with, with food, i I grew up cooking. I grew up um, on a farm in, in uh, the Mississippi Delta. <clears throat> and um, so, you know, I grew up with, with all kinds of animals and fresh food and all that kind of stuff. However, that being said, you know, I, we would be playing around barrels of poison outside, and being flown over with crop dusters, getting sprayed with herbicides and pesticides, and we didn't think anything of it. So when I, you know, became aware of those things as an adult, and you know, kind of took control of, of my food supply as much as I could, you know, um, yeah, and and like like you said, I, I taught college, I taught medieval history and Roman history for a little while. I, I love teaching. I think it's a lot of fun. And you usually end up learning as much from the students as, as you're teaching them. So
0: I full-heartedly agree with you. That's <laughs> totally true.
1: <laughs> so anyway, I, I have a real passion for, for sharing information and um, you know helping people to have better health and enjoy the things that I enjoy.
0: And have you done much with Kiefer in your own Personal practice or, or writing about it?
1: Oh my gosh, yeah, I, um, I I use it a lot. I mean, of course, we make smoothies and, and that kind of thing out of it a lot. But um, I made a, a traditional Southern buttermilk pie a couple weeks ago with kefir instead of buttermilk. It was so yummy.
0: <laughs> it sounds like it. yeah, that's, <laughs> there are so many ways to sneak uh, kefir or other fermented dairy, and it's delicious.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So then this, this was like a, a good finding. I mean, you, you reached out and, and shared this, uh, with me and, and, and thank you so much for doing that because, you know, I, I remember seeing this. I think I mentioned something about it and, you know, I just hadn't had the time to really dig in, especially the way that, that you've been able to and, and the perspective you've been able to bring to this. So this has been great. Well,
1: thank you. It was my pleasure.
0: Yeah. And where, where should people go to, to find out more about you, like your website or any, any other social media?
1: Yeah. My website is firmdementals.com. Um, and you can find me on Facebook and uh, on Google under Fundamentals at Gmail. Um, I'm not so much. I'm getting into it. Well, I do Pinterest. So I'm getting my Pinterest page up. Um, I'm not. I'm, I'm a historian. That means that I'm not the most tech savvy person usually. Um, so all the crazy social media i'm not really on a whole lot of things other than facebook and google plus
0: hey you're still getting there that's still that's still pretty good coverage
1: okay <laughs> yeah
0: no that's that's good hey as long as people have a place to get to you that's that's the important thing
1: absolutely y- y-
0: um and and your website looks great i mean so if, however you're figuring that stuff out um it's it's working as well and you've got great information on there um some great articles and so you are going to also have an article on uh this Kiefer discovery as well correct
1: Absolutely. I posted it last night.
0: Awesome. So I will make sure that that shows up in the sh- in the show notes as well. So yeah, again, thanks again for being on the show and, and I'll make sure that all these things end up in the show notes.
1: My pleasure.
0: You'll find the show notes at firmup.com slash podcast slash eighty nine. And then you can also find us on Twitter at FirmUp, on Facebook at FirmUp, and anywhere else at FirmUp. And until next time, firm up.